Sequel Quest, Episode 91, The Breakfast Club Sequel. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic adventure to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch. So let the adventure begin now. Dear Mr. Listener, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole five minutes to come up with movie ideas to pitch on the show. What we came up with was dumb. But we think you're crazy to make us record an entire podcast telling you which sequel, prequel, or reboot is the best. What do you care? And you see us as you want to see us, in the simplest terms, in the most convenient definitions. You see us as a redhead with a golden voice. An opinionated movie fan. A guy who thinks his podcast intros are funnier than they actually are. (laughs) And a special guest. That's the way we saw each other at 9.30pm this evening. We were brainwashed. Welcome, detentioners and detentionees alike, to the latest episode of Sequel Quest. It's good to be back in the 80s again, and we're ready to discuss a classic film that defined a generation. But first, let me introduce you to the other students confined to the library with me tonight. First, it's the guy who Barry Manilow knows raids his wardrobe. Howdy, Jeff. Yeah, I guess that's (laughs) me, sure. Next, it's the man who knows if you mess with a bull, you'll get the horns. It's Jeremy. This is true. Finally, fresh from taping Larry Lester's buns together, I'm Adam. And joining us tonight is a special guest who is very interested in pursuing a career in the custodial arts. You know him from our Super Mario Brothers The Movie bonus episode, one half of the dynamic duo at smbmovie.com. Welcome, Steven. Hey, guys. It's great to be here. Always a privilege to talk about movies, especially when they're not Super Mario Brothers. (laughs) (laughs) We're giving you a little break tonight. But I should mention that, Steven, you know, you revealed in the bonus episode interview that we did with you last year that not only had you produced several issues uh, of a sequel comic book to the live-action Super Mario Brothers movie with the writer of the screenplay, but we're also working on a musical version of the film do i remember that right yeah yeah that's very correct um at, at the time we had just started a uh, development on that project but as of december of last year the script for that project is complete and i'm pitching it to a few people i know and i'm hoping to have a production moving forward uh, not necessarily this year but hopefully in 2020 That's something to look forward to, for sure. So, you are no stranger to hypothetical continuations of movie universes. Oh, no, not at all. I'm very familiar with fan conceptualizing, fan fiction, that kind of thing. And I've always done that myself. I've seen where stories could go, um, especially when they didn't have a sequel. So, in a case like this for The Breakfast Club, where many people consider it to be the perfect standalone film that doesn't need any further continuation or exploration. I think that's a 
opportunity rife for um, plenty of sequel concepts. So for you personally, because you did approach us with this last year, said, hey guys, I'd love to be on a real episode of Sequel Quest. I've got some ideas. What is it about The Breakfast Club that would mean that much to you? The film does really well at capturing that slice of life feeling of being a, a young adult on the threshold of adulthood stuck in this situation detention school what have you and not really being understood or heard but finding you know commonality and family with those alongside you and i think that uh speaks to a lot of people's experiences so that that's just why it speaks to me in particular but I think a lot of people can relate as well. Yeah. So, Jeff, what about you? Where where does the the Breakfast Club fall for you in terms of does it have a personal significance to you? Yeah. I, I mean, I probably watched this movie when I was in high school, but I didn't really connect to it until after high school. And it was, for me, ever since I was in my twenties or whatever, I made up a list of movies I will show my children to let them know I understand what they're going through. And this one, Rebel Without a Cause, would definitely be the ones of like, listen, I've been there because like for me, the experience that they have is a very similar experience to what I had, not physically, but emotionally and socially. Plus, which I don't know if, Adam, you were going to talk about it, too, is that we did do a scene from... Actually, no, I was... Was yeah, I in the scene? No, you weren't. Let, let's get into that, because okay. I, I, I have to admit, for me... The Breakfast Club was not on my radar as a kid or as a teenager, probably due to the R rating. You know, the closest I got to a John Hughes movie was like Curly Sue, which I saw in theaters, you know, <laughs> Home Alone, which he wrote but did not direct. And I also remember renting Weird Science at one point and really liking it. But that was more based on having watched the 90s TV series on the USA Network and then said, hey, what was that based on? Oh, this movie's cool. But yeah, I first heard about the film around 1990 when my friends were planning to perform the lunch scene from the film at a movie-themed school talent show. And if you remember back from our Three Amigos episode, Jeff and I recreated a scene from Three Amigos along with our uh, former co-host Justin. We did the My Little Buttercup, and then Jeff was also in a scene for Ferris Bueller, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to someday. But my contribution to the scene, which I was not in, was that our friend Bobek, it was funny, he was a very goofy 90s goth kid, and he was playing Bender, but he didn't have the clothes so I had to give him this random wardrobe that I wasn't, you know, a white trash tough guy either, but I had these costumes that I always put together. So I loaded like a, a flannel shirt with the sleeves ripped off. He actually gave a nice performance as John Bender. That was his role. You know, he just got to Bender's big monologue about his home life, which was a, a true feat of acting, in my opinion. And that's where I found out, oh, The Breakfast Club? I'll go check it out. But Jeff, what do you recall from that particular performance there was a difference between the way that it appeared in our minds versus the way that everyone else saw it so <laughs> that was one not many people had actually seen the breakfast club so when Bobak like pulled back his arm which I, I think he just put like a little marker on his arm for a cigar <laughs> burn and so no one could tell what he was doing and people kept, ended up laughing and it was like I don't think this is supposed to be funny but yeah now Jeremy what about for you because again we always talk about you're kind of a, a slightly different generation than us where did you find out about the breakfast club and how did it kind of come into your movie watching 
well, mostly during those teenage years, you have the Breakfast Club, 16 Candles, the whole Hughes collection there that you just kind of get into probably on a whim. It was interesting going back to it and considering Netflix has it right now. So if you haven't watched it in a while and can't find a VHS player, I know, <laughs> I know that's not an issue for Adam. Adam has the only one left in America. <laughs> yeah, go check it out. Go relive it. It's kind of slow. It's way slower than I was remembering it. it. It was a little interesting going back to it. Yeah, well, I mean, it does feel like it, it's a movie whose legend has really grown as the years have gone on, you know, because it probably is in the top 10, maybe top five movies associated with 80s cinema, right? It's the thing that people go back to it. And I feel like if it's top 10, that list is already split between Steven Spielberg films and John Hughes films. <laughs> if you just say, what are these movies of the 80s that have survived the decade and you just go back to immediately, you know? And what's weird is like, this was only his second time directing after 16 candles he'd actually written this script first and the studio said no we need something more commercial so he did 60 candles which really wasn't a hit and then he did breakfast club which was made on a million dollar budget and made 45 million dollars wow. which is I, I you just think about that that's fantastic just the word of mouth on that thing it must have been all teens getting to the movie theater like yes they're they're talking about me but but that's that's the question that I have for you guys then, because Jeff mentioned it, it spoke to him emotionally, what he dealt with as a teenager. But what this film really deals with is the whole idea of social structure, right? That That's really what's being debated. That's what's being broken down and, and dissected. So for you guys, you know, the, the main target seems to be popularity right so the the popular girl claire played by molly ringwald is really the one that everybody seems to be saying like you're bad you're bad because you're popular and it's not fair so before we get into really dissecting like you know the details of this film for you guys were you in any way popular or which of the breakfast clubbers do you feel like you fit into if if any like steven for you you know i, w I was probably the basket case i was nowhere, <laughs> nowhere near the athlete or the criminal or definitely not the princess <laughs> all right jeremy what do you claim uh i was probably one of the fringe guys between the athlete circle and the brain circle and Jeff, I know where you stand. I was there. But where do you see yourself? Well, especially at our high school, there's a lot of groups that aren't represented, which on a side note, I think I would disagree with you, Adam. I don't think this is about social structures. I think it uses social structures as the context. Hmm. And it says that it's about what it means to be a teenager and that it doesn't matter your social structure, you're all dealing with these things, and that's how they connect. But anyway, so for me, for my first two years, I would have been the basket case, where I just did my own thing. I had very little friends, I didn't really hang out with anybody, and then my junior and senior year, I was in the theater, and so I just hung out with theater people, and we just did things that theater people do. I, I don't know how well that's represented specifically in the movie. 
Yeah, and that that's a good point, you know, yeah, because I, I wasn't a particularly angsty teenager, so kind of like you said, Jeff, I didn't hate my parents, so I didn't really relate to these kids hating their parents, and the parents are the problem, adults are, you know, messing up our lives, ultimately, and they could bond over that. But I could see how a teenager of any generation would feel vindicated by this film, like it represented their viewpoint, which was going unheard, you know, in the way that teens kind of feel like they know everything about life just because their bodies suddenly started growing hair you know and there's still so much to learn but yeah I, I agree with you Jeff like to me it's like they were missing a drama kid they had a kid mm. who did high school theater you know he was struggling with body image issues and their own identity was hiding behind characters they played on stage desperately vying for recognition of their peers by being a great entertainer that I could totally relate but That's true. um <laughs> But what's funny is for me, I had an odd kind of notoriety in that I was very well known. And actually, by the time Jeff left like high school, because he was two years older than me, he didn't see like my pinnacle <laughs> where I was like in student government. I did the announcements over our PA with funny voices for a year. I did the plays. I was singing lead in a heavy metal garage band that played at the school a couple times. So by some weird twist of fate and just being so visible i actually became the homecoming king my senior year which <laughs> I, I always felt like was a joke you know like they're all dumping on the prom queen in this one and molly ringwald gets it i felt like they would have been attacking me and i would have been like guys nobody cares about me like <laughs> they all know my name but i'm not hanging out i'm not going to the parties you know the the wealthy jocks and cheerleaders in the back parking lot as we called it were not hang you know calling me to hang out so like again with Jeff luckily we had our group of friends to hang out with otherwise I would have just sat at home watching Simpsons reruns which I also did a fair amount of <laughs> you know <laughs> But, you know, delving back into that, Jeff, what you're saying the movie is really about, why do you think that's so universal? Why has that continued to resonate? Well, my job now, you know, I work with uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers, so I still see, which we'll, we'll talk about when we get kind of into the pitches and stuff like that, is at least for me, is that I feel like the biggest challenge, and like you said, Adam, I know like my experience, I guess I would define myself as a little more angsty, as you put it as a teenager. But for me, the hardest thing about being a teenager is the fact that they want to be treated like adults, but they don't really want the responsibility of being an adult. I want that sweet spot. Take me seriously, but give me nothing to do. And I mean, <laughs> not, and that's not even quite fair because the reality is, is like, don't give me anything pointless to do. And I was just talking about this with some students yesterday that for me, like every summer job that I ever had as a student was pretty demeaning because basically you have no diploma. You aren't even 18 yet. We assume you have no skills. You have nothing to offer. So we're literally going to give you something that you only need a heartbeat to do. Here, sweep this floor. Literally, that's, that's all that you could do. And as a teenager, that's pretty frustrating. And so for me, again, that's what resonates with me with this movie is that's what they're wrestling with. They're wrestling with the fact that, like, yes, we all come from different backgrounds and we've seen in different ways, but we're all struggling with the same thing. And Stephen, is there like a particular moment for you that stands out? They're like, oh, well, this is this is why I go back to this movie or this is a, you know, a moment that resonates with me. 
It's an interesting film because it's so raw the way that these kids come to know each other that I think it's it's not a movie that you pop in every year. It's something yeah. you watch maybe a little more infrequently because mm-hmm. you're trying to recapture an experience that these kids are having. And I think that's expressed best in, you know, this scene when the criminal kid finally comes back. He is climbing to the air ducts. He crashes in and they conceal mm-hmm. him. I think that's like at that moment, they finally realized that they're in this for the long haul. They bonded over the fact that they're all in detention and that they need to unify against this authority figure. And I think that's when everyone kind of gets on board with the concept. Yeah, that is a core moment for sure. You're, yeah. I mean, that's the weird thing about this movie is, you know, obviously you're saying it's happening within the course of a few hours. It, it seems like it could not actually happen, but could it? You know, like... I personally, I only got detention once for excessive tardies, and that was really my mom's fault, because she was giving me a ride, you know, so <laughs> it was never so exciting as this to be able to, to bond with these different factions from my my high school, So, but it just seems like, yeah, like, it's kind of convenient for the narrative purposes, but at the same time, like you're saying, it's, it's speaking to the need that teenagers have to feel connected to somebody, to feel accepted, and in that particular moment, they're able to say, you know what he may be a jerk and he may be a loudmouth, but he's still one of us and we're standing up against authority who happened to be you know a bigger jerk in general in this case with richard vernon who is fantastic as well paul gleason as principal vernon is he the principal or is he the vice principal because i'm like is the principal really gonna he loves you know being in, in that position of authority so much he just wants to lord it over and waste his own saturday anybody have an answer for that one <laughs> Yeah, he definitely gets off on having power. And Carl even has a moment there where where they're looking through the confidential files where he kind of calls him out on it. That's true, yeah. But it's weird because, as you mentioned Carl, let me just drop in a little bit of casting trivia that I find fascinating. Because that actor does a great job of being a little bit aloof, kind of a weirdo, kind of creepy, you know, but, but he's still believable. And to me... What's really funny is that the original casting, like actually cast for that role, was Rick Moranis. And he grew out a full beard, and he was doing a Russian accent. And it is crazy to think, if you had had that much wackiness in this film, it would have Mm. derailed it. Because it does, it the tone of the film is perfect. Like the angsty teen side of it, and you know, there's comedy, but it's not, it's not like slapstick comedy. And I feel like that's veering into slapstick comedy if you let Rick Moranis do that. And one of the producers saw that. And he's like, "This is ridiculous. We got to get rid of this guy." <laughs> Wait, hold up, hold up. Which which character was he going to play? The janitor, the Carl. Janitor. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But what's so like, funny is that's almost identical to what happened to John candy in ghostbusters who was originally cast as lewis tully and he was gonna be this german guy and he had these big dogs and that was his concept and they're like john we love you but no you know Uh. and then you get rick moranis in there so it's just funny how those sctv guys you know would lose jobs by going a little too crazy on the characterizations but Jeremy, where do you find the moment that speaks to you i don't know exactly i guess it's Everybody kind of cutting loose in that environment, looking back at it now, that would have been something that really would have connected 
just because you felt like you could not do that. So to see some empowered teenagers kind of rebelling by having fun and getting a little snarky with a, with a, an authority figure. Uh, kind of like the only time I, I ever really got detention or anything was eighth grade art class. We had these like essentially coloring book pages and we were to color them in. And so I was like, well, Santa's kind of standing up in his sleigh bent forward. He's a big guy. His pants would sag a little bit. <laughs> and so I gave a little bit of skin showing and a crack, and that got me detention. That got me written up. You rebel. You I know. Rebel. I knew it. I knew it from the moment we started this show. This oh. guy is trouble, I said. Oh. So, so that's like the only way that I think that I could even connect with this movie would be – I, I was kind of in Brian's category to where I didn't deserve to be there. Then again, looking back on what Brian did to get there. Yeah. You know, like, I think the the strength of this film, I mean, the writing's pretty good overall. And directorially, you know, with John Hughes, the, the way it's staged is fairly simple. But at the same time, it's very, it's very effective. But I think because they said they rehearsed it over and over again, like a play, it just felt like it does have that natural element to it. And you know, it obviously goes to the performers and just the casting. And just the idea of looking at this cast and then seeing what they went on to do. Right. I mean, because obviously you have Emilio Estevez, the Mighty Ducks franchise. Go back in the archives, you can listen to our thoughts on Emilio! And uh, Ali Sheedy had Short Circuit, again, also in the archives, our Short Circuit 3, see where we took that. Uh, but she had Made to Order and a couple other things like that. Jed Nelson, you know, had New Jack City. I know him best as Hot Rod in Transformers the movie. You know, <laughs> and then Molly Ringwald, she probably had like the hardest fall in terms of notoriety. And then she stepped out of it. Like she said, right. like, John, I don't want to do any more teen movies. And so he got mad at her because she, mm. she wouldn't accept any yeah. more roles he was writing for her. Like you're saying, Adam, is that, that this movie is maybe even more significant for the cast is the fact that like this is the Brat Pack and that they were the revolution on Hollywood. It was like, oh my gosh, like where did these kids come from? I mean, yeah, in hindsight, when we look at some of their films, like we don't remember a lot of like, yeah, what Judd Nelson went off and done, even though he ends up as the star of this movie, he steals the show. And so you would assume that, and that was kind of the thought I think at the time was that, man, this kid like, forget it. Like, he's taken over the world now. Didn't quite pan out that way, but it still was that that perception. Yeah, well, and his problem was, you know, apparently he was such a method actor that he was Bender on and off camera. So he was, like, harassing everybody, especially Molly Ringwald, and just picking on people and being obnoxious to the point where John Hughes said, I will never work with this kid again. Well, he almost uh, fired him on set, but it was uh, Vernon who stood up for him. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So they said he's doing something special here. You know, let him stay with it, yeah. And what's also, you know, again, if we're going to go with alternate casting real qu quick, what could have been the Nicolas original... Cage. Yeah, well, uh, but Nicolas Cage is who they wanted, yeah. but he was too expensive. <laughs> but who they actually cast was John Cusack. 
John Cusack was Bender. Mm. And then they just like, after a few rehearsals, they were kind of like, this just isn't quite what we need. And then Judd Nelson was in the running and they're like, that's the guy. The one that impresses me the most is Anthony Michael Hall. Because, I mean, he obviously, you know, he was in vacation. He had weird science after this. But he also became the youngest cast member ever on Saturday Night Live with Robert Downey Jr. They both hired in, and I think they were like 18 or 19, which is crazy. So he, he does fancy himself a comedian. I have to say, like, there's those moments, he does it both in this movie and Weird Science, where he, he does these, like, bits where whenever he's smoking weed and he starts acting like a stereotypical black jazz musician, right. he goes, ah, women can't demand it, And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, this is offensive, <laughs> Anthony Michael Hall. This is not funny. <laughs> Yeah. But he rebounded. I mean, he's he's been working consistently since, you know, vacation and then, you know, moving beyond that with the, all the, you know, the John Hughes projects initially. The Edward Scissorhands with Tim Burt. He was in The Dark Knight, you know? So, I mean, he's he's been in some bigger projects over the years. He's kind of known, I think he's known best for he was the lead on the Stephen King TV show. He was on that for like four years. That's probably what most people know him for these days. Yeah, the dead zone, right? Dead zone, there it is, yeah. Yeah. Well, and and for the TV fans out there, he is in Riverdale. Oh. And he's the principal. Interesting. Um, <laughs> as, of, as of 2018, so it's probably the second season. The other thing is for all the Marvel TV fans, he was just added to the cast of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., so this could be interesting. He may be looking at a villain part. Uh, not bad, not bad. If anybody wants to know, uh, Paul Gleason, you know, paid, played Principal Vernon. He's been at other things. Um, I knew him best, and it was a total 180 from the uh, Ewoks Battle for Endor TV oh, movie. of course you did, Adam. He plays of the father of the little girl who's the star <laughs> who gets killed at the beginning, but he's like a nice heroic guy, and then he gets shot by these mutants, you know? Wait, no, oh, you mean in the second one? In the first yeah, the one, second he's one. captured the entire movie. Right, and then in the second one, he's alive, fighting him off, and then he gets shot and he's dead. Like, her whole family gets killed, and right. it's just this little girl with the Ewoks after that. So, yeah, but so the, it was always weird for me to see him in this, because I saw this after the fact, you know? Uh -huh. So I'm like, oh, but he's such a nice guy, and here he's being a jerk to these kids. But he's, but, but nothing, well, and that's, for me, I feel like it's almost this exact same character that he played. We could even figure out how that loops in together, that this same character then becomes the police chief in Die Hard because he's got the same kind of lines. <laughs> That's right, yeah. We're going to need some more FBI guys, I guess. Still the best <laughs> line. Oh. <laughs> and then now I, I think it's it's worth mentioning too, you know, that obviously John Hughes, known as a writer, this was early in his directing career, but he had a lot of different titles for the film as well, which I th I think the idea that they were gonna call it the Lunch Bunch <laughs> or Library Revolution, you know, like <laughs> Not that The Breakfast Club is that much better, but it, it seems so nebulous, you don't know what it means, that the movie gives that phrase meaning. Mm. You know, like, whereas those other ones, you'd kind of, I don't know, they, they just sound like Little Rascals spinoffs or something. Now, the other thing, too, is, you know, Stephen, you made mention of this, that this seems ripe for sequels, and there was a deleted epilogue that they had Carl explaining what actually did happen to everybody 10 years on. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so, so John Hughes had that figured out. I won't go through it here. You can look it up online. So he had planned Hughes to film Breakfast Club sequels every 10 years to literally like follow up with the cast. Huh. But after the falling out with Molly Ringwald, after not wanting to work with Judd Nelson, I think he scrapped that idea. And so it never happened. You know, here we are, 1985, we're in 2019, no Breakfast Club sequels or spinoffs or anything. So I think Steven's right. You know, it's, it's ripe and it's ready. I'm very curious to find out where we take this then, because uh, I, I think there's there's so many character stories in here and we just got one day in their lives Mm. so what what could possibly happen beyond that so steven i think you've had this brewing in your mind and we've waited long enough why don't you Mm -hmm. lay it on us well i i think that there were two main continuations that they could have done the the first one less so than the second ones but i'll i'll get into that the first one is that they could have continued the film into like literally the next day and on Monday morning when you have the entire detention class are back in school on a regular school day and they have to interact with their usual cliques and you're exposed to the question of whether or not they're going to remain friends and if they're truly going to have been changed by the detention that they shared on the weekend. But that particular plot line, I feel, hews a little too far from the original premise. So I think another idea that they, they could have explored that would be a lot more fun in my mind is if they had brought the kids back the next weekend, because we do know that um, some of them do have detention the next weekend. Not all of them, but some of them do. And it'd be interesting to see a few of them because, you know, you probably if they had done a sequel, they very likely could not have brought everyone back. So it's a justifiable reason to have only some of them in next Mm -hmm. weekend's detention. And then you can throw a few more kids in there and you have a completely different dynamic. These kids who've been in detention already and they've already bonded over it. And then you have a few more kids with completely different experiences. So who who is your vote in that particular scenario for who would come back then? Well, you, you definitely have Judd Nelson coming back because of the obvious. But I, I think you could also, for realism reasons, I, I mean, it's not exactly realistic that uh, Anthony Michael Hall only got detention for bringing in a flare gun, but it would make sense that he got more than just one weekend, so I could see him coming back. Molly Ringwald, who at the time, as we've all discussed, uh, w- was pretty big. I-, I don't think she would have. And, you know, the other girl, the basket case, she, you wouldn't want to be pegged down in that kind of role. So she's probably out as well. And then Emilio Estevez, you know, another big name. So he's gone. So you'd have like three gone and just two returning, essentially. Okay. You got Bender and Brian in that scenario. Okay. Yeah. And that's when you can really have those two characters who didn't really ever seem to bond in the first film really mm-hmm. coming together and being brothers for once by the second week of detention (laughs) interesting okay so we got we got bender and brian the next saturdays is your pitch all right yeah and brian he gets far more confident in the process and probably has his moment to shine because you would probably have several more female characters and one of them could be a love interest a lot of 
people that complain about the original film complain that you kind of paired off four of the characters, but Brian has no one. So you could give him a, some sort of love interest and he gains enough confidence over the course of the film that by the end of it, he's the one who's paired off. Hey, can I give you a fun fact on that, by the way? So, yeah, that's the common thing, you know, is, you know, Bender and Claire end up together and you get Andy and the basket case together. But what what's interesting is that actually after this production, Anthony Michael Hall and Molly Ringwald did date each other for a while. So <laughs> it, it, he actually did get the prom queen. <laughs> Just not in this reality, not in John Hughes's mind. But I'm going to jump in then because just as you put Bender and Brian together, I had a little bit of a different take on that, which is to say that I feel like, you know, and obviously nothing came together for an actual sequel to be made. But what if John Hughes could somehow have seen his vision through? So I am pitching a two-hour series premiere pilot TV movie 10 years after the events of the first film. So this is 1995. There is some precedent for this because Ferris Bueller did get turned into a sitcom, if anybody recalls, with Jennifer Aniston as Sloane. And it was very short-lived, but it did happen. So I have decided to title this particular sitcom. It would be on NBC, must-see TV, 1995. It's called forget about me we open we find john bender played by judd nelson acting in his role as a corporate executive in a board meeting for a tech-based company he promises big changes for the company in the next quarter huge earnings and of course a few layoffs starting with a rather large older gentleman he claims has been taking advantage of the corporate lunch account for the last quarter century finally bender declares that the bottom line is the bottom line and you can take that to the bank any questions to which a rather sour-faced female executive raises her hand. Yes, who are you? Causing Bender to shout incredulously, Who am I? Who am I? I'll tell you who I am. Just then, an older Brian, played by Anthony Michael Hall, walks into the boardroom apologizing and muttering to himself, Sorry, I'm late. Some inconsiderate individual left his junker in my private parking space, and looking up, he makes eye contact with the specter from his past and mutters, Oh, no. Uh-huh. Leading to Bender, announcing proudly, I'm Brian's new business partner. Next, we find Bender strolling into Brian's posh corner office and making himself comfortable with feet up on the desk while reclining in a big leather office chair. Brian reminds Bender that when the huckster approached him five years ago with an idea for an aquarium-based furniture company, he declined. When Bender somehow weaseled his way into a corporate retreat for Brian's company in Malibu three years later, with a pitch for a computer dating service where hot, blind girls were hooked up with rich, ugly dudes, he passed. And just six months earlier, when Bender popped up dressed as a waiter at a fancy steakhouse to present Brian and his table of potential foreign business clients with what he professed would be the biggest fad diet food since Ultra Slim Fast, which was in fact earthworms being positioned as 100% protein, no fat, no sugar, Brian vomited, then expressed his disinterest. Bender says he knows Brian won't be able to turn him down this time, causing Brian to scoff and inquire, and why is that? To which a smirking Bender responds, Because I have this. Then he pulls out an old tape recorder from his pocket, pushes play on a cassette, 
and we hear Brian crying and confessing of his suicide attempt to his fellow detention attendees that fateful day in the library. Bender claims he could send the tape to the story along with Brian's high school yearbook photo to the newspapers, creating a buzz about this new tech wonderkind and placing doubt in the mind of the execs of a corporation with whom he was planning a merger. What do you want from me, Brian pleads. Just a friendly ear, Brian, and maybe a little capital. But first... How about some breakfast? So, that's the kickoff to Forget About Me, and the weekly series that would follow essentially involves each week Brian funding another crazy business venture that Bender has come up with. (laughs) And of course, eventually, just like Frasier did with Cheers, you'd get, you know, Molly Ringwald would come in, you know, you'd get Emilio Estevez, you know, this is like, they they would get the rest of the crew in at some point throughout the first season, because who knows if they'd get to a second. Most likely not. But, uh... But this that is my pitch for the series. Brian and Bender and Forget About Me. Forget About Me. Oh, boy. All right, Jeff, what do you have for us? So since we've already gotten a direct sequel and then a sitcom, I'll add to the trio by proposing a reboot. <gasps> I, the, no. I don't really like the... I don't know. I wouldn't pitch it as a reboot, however, because I don't like the word reboot personally. But the thing is, is that I feel like this story needs to be told to the generation that's out there right now. So I would like to tell this story again. This time, my thought was the the differences that would be one slightly different cast. Instead of having five students, I was thinking of having six students. We have an athlete. We have a popular girl. We have a band person, a bando. Gator. We have a nobody, and then we have, yeah, you called him a basket case in the 80s, but now it would be a... A juggalo? <laughs> a juggalo. Um, but anyway, so somebody that, yeah, you'd see around, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I thought it would be interesting, kind of like you were saying, Adam, the idea that this entire thing would happen in a day, and then all like the time frame and stuff like that. So my thought was I wanted to make it like what 24 would do, where it's real time or whatever. Okay, So basically after the introduction of the movie, the vice principal or whatever says that, like, you guys are here for 90 minutes. And from that time, it's 90 minutes of actual film time until they're done. I think that would give it a little bit more momentum. Uh, So the athlete, the big struggle with the athlete, the athlete's probably going to be the instigator, the one that actually starts the conversations. Their big struggle is going to be, I need to be best on the team. I need to make the all-star team. I need to do this, like, or I'm not going to get a scholarship. I'm not going to go to college. But at the same time, I also need to get straight A's or I'm not going to go to college. And I go home and my parents are saying, did you get all your homework done? Well, it's time to go to practice, blah, 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 blah. I only sleep four hours a night. Etc. 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 That's going to be the the general revelation that we find. The popular girl is going to be popular these days because she has a YouTube channel that everybody follows. They follow her on Instagram, and again, people assume, kind of like with Molly Ringwald, that she's very superficial and everything like that. But she said, "But you don't realize like how much." pressure i'm under i have to stream myself three hours every single day and if i don't have something interesting to say i'm done and i'm like this is my one shot to actually be somebody and if i'm not this person then who the heck am i the band one again that's the one where i get a little confusing because honestly i'm not exactly sure what band 
people struggle with. I know they struggle with some of the normal stuff, but like what the pressures of being a band O would be. The skater is the kind of a guy that like talks very much like, whoa, buddy, like what's going on? And it's just so consequently, everyone thinks that he's a stoner, but he's not. And he actually does think of things and he actually does realize that everybody thinks this about him and like that's tough man that everybody thinks i'm a druggie how do you think that makes me feel etc etc and that my parents think the same thing about me so that's going to be very something very similar the creepy one is going to be kind of wrestling with something similar except for it's this fact of i want to be me and i'm really trying to be me and i like the way that i dress and i know everyone thinks i'm creepy i know no one wants to talk to me i know no one wants to be my friend I know that. And how do you think that makes me feel, et cetera, et cetera. My parents don't get me, rah, rah, rah. Uh, and then the nobody, the nobody that I would see being like either a freshman or sophomore is they're literally a non-entity where they show up, go to their classes and go home. And then they play computer games, usually like one player RPG, that sort of stuff like that. And it's just like, I hate high school because all it is is going to class. No one talks to me outside of when they have to. I don't have any friends. I'm just there all by myself. And so then same sort of a thing. I'd love that, like we talked about in the original movie, is that as this hour and a half is going on, they develop this community where they realize that what the skater thinks of the athlete and what the creepy person thinks of the popular girl and blah, 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 blah is that they are all ultimately dealing with the same sort of things. But then the second thing that I thought was interesting is that maybe that's the whole reboot thing, is that we keep the same, like, you got to write a paper. Which, for me, Jeremy, like you were saying, the thing that always bugged me about the original movie is they made Brian write the paper. It was like, come on, <laughs> dude. Like, at least you could all work on it together. So, but I kind of like it. It was a nice little monologue and stuff like that. I kind of think that it would be interesting. Maybe that's how the conversation starts. And then that's how it ultimately ends is that they need to each write a paper of what do you want to be? Ultimately, the conversation shifts from it really doesn't matter what I want to be as much as it matters who I want to be. And that that's what they end up bonding on at the end. And they all end up writing something poignant along those lines about the kind of person that I want to be. So, yeah, so not quite a reboot and yet a reboot. So, <laughs> so and then, Jeremy, uh, if you have a pitch, let me preface this by saying that the new Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie that came out recently was basically the Breakfast Club gets superpowers. So if that's what you're pitching, Jeremy, uh, I think it's been done. Uh, luckily, no. That was not the route. And the only thing I could think of was very similar to Jeff's. So I'm going to drop my vote and say Jeff. Yay! Wow, just like that. that. Step okay. ahead. <laughs> so, Adam, where do you fall? Uh, well, I got to tell you, I mean, obviously, you know, the modern update, very popular, very likely, actually. I feel like that could actually happen. Those are very good characters. But I personally am very intrigued by Steven's pitch because I want to see, like, yeah, if Bender and Brian got put into detention again together, like, how would that play out? And then they, they sort of have a relationship. And then how do these new people fit in? And who are the new people? Like, there's a whole world of possibilities there for me. So I got to vote for Steven. Jeff, where do you fall? So, well, because I can't vote for Jeremy, so I've got to vote for, because, because, yeah, honestly, and <laughs> it's so, it's so perfect that you would do that pitch, Adam, because it does feel like 
you would have loved that Ferris Bueller sitcom and, and that sort of thing like that, but not not as much for me. I mean, obviously, like, I, I love the gravitas of this movie, so that's why I feel like Stevens, yeah, would definitely have that opportunity for a little bit more gravitas. So that would be my vote as well. All right, Steven, where do you fall? <laughs> you know, uh, I really enjoy the idea of reboot, remake. Uh, I think the time is ready for that premise. People have done it before. We've seen 21 Jump Street, things like that. The teen genre, It people have said for a long time that it is overplayed, but it's always going to be a generation that needs speaking to and why not take this very popular property that can be applied to any era and just do it again with new character archetypes all right so we find ourselves in this situation a lot <laughs> so um, but but this is going to be interesting because his was a follow-up immediately and we're looking to reboot it to do it in the modern day, there are specific obstacles, as was brought up. Jeff, you said the, the popular girl is pretty much an Instagram star. How do you have a group of children have to band together if they all have their own devices? You would have to take the phones away early on, and maybe right. that ticking clock of she has to be on streaming something every three hours, That's so they have to band together to get her phone back at least, <laughs> so they break in, Interesting. steal the phones, something like that. That that would be how I would go about it. It would give a plot for yours, some part of this anyway. Yeah. Now, That's, how to bridge two timelines? Yeah. Well, I have to tell you guys, I think I have a solution for you. Okay. We're going to hot tub time machine this. <laughs> and, and those kids, the modern day kids, go back to the 80s and end up in detention with Bender and Brian. And of course, I mean, it's going to be amazing. You're merging the two decades and they have to learn to bond somehow. They'd have to be digitally, you know, a reverse Judd aging Nelson technology. Oh, <laughs> it's okay. marvels. Outside of that idea, um, <laughs> what about what about if we could somehow incorporate like because if the main thrust is how do we bond Bender and Brian, what if Bender's the janitor and Brian <laughs> is the the principal, and that just like just like they bonded in the first movie, there's kind of two storylines going on. It doesn't have the same school element to their relationship. And that confident level, he'd already be, yeah, 30, almost 40 years older. So that right. wouldn't factor as much into it. I, I see where you're going with that, but I have one more wrinkle to put into that then. Because what if it's alternating timelines because there was a whole storyline going on with Bender and Brian during those subsequent Saturdays? And they started leaving evidence, whether it was VHS evidence or they started writing down letters about the stuff they were doing. So now these modern day kids are in the same library. They discover their cache of videos. They stumble upon it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they start learning things from them 
about you know like basically how to bridge that gap between people just through like their own craziness but you you kind of see like the adventures that brian and bender are going on and that somehow speaks to the modern day kids and again it also speaks to that idea that it's a multi-generational issue it's something that teenagers will always deal with. that's not bad because i I think that's that's an interesting thing that the breakfast club itself didn't actually do is the fact that like yeah teenagers have been wrestling with this forever and so that would be kind of cool if we could somehow bridge that gap. But I still like the timetable idea that ultimately the one who's the most concerned about getting out of detention, I th- she's the one who's trying to get to go do her YouTube. And that when they come together, it's kind of like they all came together with Bender, that they, they're going to decide ultimately when, once they get over their hangups about her, since she is the most popular one both on the web and in the school that they're going to help her to get her device back. And that's like their letter at the end is them Mm. working together to make her next video that they're going to put up, you know, or her next Instagram post that obviously is going to be them aping the same poses from the Breakfast Club poster, but it's going to have some special significance culturally rocking this generation. Maybe before that, or, or aside from that, like, I still don't quite know how we would bridge the time gap because I really like that idea of figuring out that teenagers have wrestled with this forever and and not so much in that like therefore it's not a big deal but more this ideal of like you're not alone in this but sitting around and watching a VHS I'm not quite sure what that would look like. Uh, well, I mean, but the, I think that they would be fascinated by it. That's what I'm saying. Like, you know, it's like they're almost like playing pranks or they're seeing what they're getting away with, but then they're noticing how different the two of them are, you know, and, and you're seeing like different, you know, kids coming in and out. It's like Stephen was saying, you know, so you actually could get some different characters popping in and out of their videos. But that is like the thing that they're almost bonding over maybe like the kitsch factor, like ironically laughing at those guys initially. And then they're like, oh man, these guys back in the day, look at that geek, look at that guy thinks he's so cool. But then they start realizing things about themselves and how they're positioning themselves socially and everything else. And then they, they're all kind of starting to bond over it in a different way. You know, that that's not just the laughing at them. It's like, oh, well, maybe there's something here. Cause my, and I don't know, at least for me in my brain, like I'm having difficulty picturing as a film watcher, the characters on, on the film pop in a VHS that sit around it and start watching it. It's like, I don't want to watch you watching TV where it's almost, it's like, what if we didn't connect them at all? Like what if they were just naturally connected? They come up to similar conclusions. They're parallel storyline. We jump back and forth between the two. That's a good point. That could certainly come together. Like you say, just from an editing standpoint, from the filmmaker's standpoint, as opposed to working it into the actual plot. You know, I I like this concept, Um, you know, the parallel storylines between the two generations. I I think that's a really smart way to tie them together because you Mm -hmm. want to be able to say this is the breakfast club. Otherwise, it just turns into like an American Pie sort of subtitle spinoff. So how can we tie these together? Because if we're going to have a parallel storyline... We're, we're going to have to have a connecting factor. Thoughts for preferred tie-in character from the original film if it's not just on the VHSs? Would Molly Ringwald be uh, reasonable in any way? Of all of them, what would her 
purpose for having stayed in town, right? Or is it not even the same school? I mean, in this case, we're, we're positing that it probably would be just because if we're connecting it to the old tapes and all of that, what, what do you think her role would be? Or is it just going to be next generation, but it's not all of their kids all coming back together like they did, but maybe she is the mother of one of them? I think you could go the Ghostbusters 2016 route and just have them involved in oh, cameos. <laughs> Preview for an upcoming sequel quest. Yeah, next episode. Stay tuned. I mean, I, I guess you could do that. Because, yeah, because then that makes it pause it for us. Like, where did all of them end up? But I don't we don't have enough time for that on this show. Right. Well, and not only that, if you're trying to tell two storylines and then you add a third storyline, like, yeah. yeah, you're not going to. But I do want, like, if it would connect to the second storyline or something like that, which could be. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, one, it could be with whether it's Emilio Estevez or or Molly Ringwald, especially because they were kind of the two biggest deals in school during like at, at that time is that maybe that's the peak. Molly Ringwald was never that big of a deal again. And so that maybe she's come back to be a teacher or something like that, because it's like, well, this is the best life ever got for me. So it is kind of like a reality of the adult world or something. Yeah, I mean, that could be a humbling moment for all those kids, too. Yeah, that she's just kind of open and honest about it and then came to terms with it. She's like, I mean, you could say it's sad, but I recognize it. You know, and there were there were better points in my life, I guess. But that was where the, you know, the time I was the most free. It was the time that, you know, I had everything going for me and the anticipation for what I could do or just the possibilities in front of me. And that something like along those lines could inspire those kids again to kind of set aside their petty differences or their personal hangups or whatever. Maybe she's just in and out. Maybe she is not the one like overseeing them, but maybe she just happens to be in there like prepping for a class and notices one of them as one of her students. So she kind of steps in and it's at a particularly tense moment for all of them or something. I don't or know. I, I wonder if we do, because I, I kind of am thinking, especially because we, we mentioned that whole subplot or, or maybe it's the main plot of the YouTuber and that she needs to get her phone back and stuff like that. What if Molly Ringwald is the one that's like the, the principal or whatever? And so they try and sneak into her office to get the phone back. And then the, that's like the climax of the movie is that she catches the youtube girl and they have a heart to heart about like the fact that i defined myself by how many people liked me and i understand that that's the pressure that you're under but like if that's the way that you're defining your life that's not who you are so then the youtube girl gives up her youtube channel or something like that and that's where we make that turn into from what do you want to be to who do you want to be maybe that's where you get at the very end of the film the opening and closing narration the iconic stuff from the first film where you actually have the youtuber as she's closing down her channel she's making a speech that kind of mirrors that you know it's not word for word but it's it's feeling very closely to the similar themes about people not identifying themselves in the simplest terms, not seeing each other that way, you know, and that type of thing. And then, yeah, I don't know if she, I don't know if she ends with a punch it into the air or not, but, uh, you know, it's just something along those lines. I think that's probably valuable. Like you said, it's kind of an old fuddy duddy, uh, 
point of view for us to be putting on today's kids, but at the same time, I think there is value in that. And I'll see, in, in I, again, it. and I think more than that, like that's that's the lesson we all need to learn is that it matters way more who you are than what you are. And I don't think that's an old fuddy-duddy mentality at all. Well, I just bet the abandoning of, of a YouTube channel or a social media presence that like we're, we're saying, ah, like, oh, get off your devices, kid. That's kind of what I was meaning. Yeah. But, but I think, I think what you're saying is very valuable. Cause, and I think the sweet spot would be as if we can find Brat Pack number two, or we can find a cast of just about to explode actors and actresses. Mm hmm. But if they're just about to explode, I don't know that we know who they are right now. So, uh, well, I, I think there's there's a fair amount of young actors really coming into their own. Like, who's the gal that was just, uh, Jeremy, you're going to know this. She's like a pop star, but she's in Bumblebee. She's in Into the Spider-Verse. Haley Steinfeld. Yeah, she seems to really be on the cusp of something right now. Where, you know, like, I, I feel like she might actually... Uh, be a good core as that, that, you know, the YouTuber girl to, to kind of build it around. And then, you know, he's a little too big for it, seemingly, but I wonder if he could, again, after the Marvel stuff, you know, Sony Marvel stuff has kind of died down and before he gets too old, but you get Tom Holland in there, maybe. How big of a budget are you thinking this is going to be? <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. He he would do it for scale because he believes in the project. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Oh. He wants to get a more serious, more serious respect in the community. Nah, see, I think you're right. I think he's he's too big by now. Is that he's already? Uh, I mean, again, he's in the biggest movies of all time. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, one another one that was coming to mind for me was. Again, Jeremy, you're going to know her name and I won't, but the gal from Split, because she, I thought she was, again, a younger actress, but really had, she looked like she could. Anya Taylor-Joy, the main character? Yes. Uh, yeah. Oh. That name does sound familiar. I didn't recognize the face, even when I saw Glass this weekend. Oh, boy. Give That's us, save another it for the pod. sequel, chat. Nope, yeah. I'm going to save it for another <laughs> show because oh boy do we have thoughts you know the other person i was thinking of because again you're kind of like for people that maybe have like hit it big in one thing but are they going to be able to branch out are they going to be given other work outside of what they're dealing with and i was thinking you know finn wolfhard is getting a lot of attention you know he's in in the it movies and all that and coming off stranger things but the kid who I don't know, is he ever going to work again, I guess is, is how I feel about it, is Gatton Matarazzo, uh, who plays Dustin, you know, the kid who was missing teeth and all that. Like, to me, like, he, he could definitely play, like, one of the outsider roles, or maybe he's going to surprise us and he's going to be the skater or something. But he was one to me that kind of stood out where I was like, I wonder if he has another side to him or another character that he you know if just given the the silver screen treatment we could see a little bit more steven if anybody comes to mind for you let us know well in in terms of directors i did have someone in mind i saw this movie on netflix last year dumplin by ann fletcher oh my <laughs> I, I liked it a lot. It, it was pretty enjoyable. It had a good use of uh, a di diverse range of characters who didn't really seem like 
cardboard cutouts. They all seemed pretty three-dimensional and very realistic. And Anne Fletcher, she had previously directed one of my top five favorite comedy films of all time, The Proposal with Sandra Bullock. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that that could be good then. Yeah, there's there's that certainly in the running there. Although I would say though, because I mean, at least looking at her filmography, I mean, so if we're talking about, I did enjoy the proposal, but <laughs> we've got the proposal, Step Up, <laughs> The Guilt Trip, and Hot Pursuit. So I'm I didn't see Dumplin', so maybe that's the one <laughs> that makes her qualify. Like I don't know, because again, like the John Hughes, like I get the 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 dynamics between people. I don't know if. That's has she shown that in the other things that you've seen her do? Um, yeah, in in Dumplin', that that's the first thing that came to mind is yeah. it's just how she handled the characters in that film, which is more teenage characters than adult characters. Uh, all the other films in her filmography do seem to be more adult oriented characters. <laughs> right. Well, and I'll just drop a bomb if I got my choice, Jordan Peele. He's everybody's choice right now. But I feel like, again, if you're dealing with social issues, but in, you know, again, a, kind of a more creative way and possibly a more humorous way, but then hitting you hard when you need it, Jordan Peele seems to be able to find that balance very well that I feel like was in the original. As, you know, you know he's only directed one movie, right? <laughs> <laughs> All of that you're basing on... It was an impactful film. It, it was impactful, and have you I seen the trailers for his next one? Yeah, I did. Called Us? But that's a trailer, man. Come on. I know. Settle down here. Jordan Peele's The Breakfast Club. It's going to sell tickets, I'm telling you. It, it'll be a Blumhouse horror film if if we go that route. <laughs> That's another way to go, man. Bender's back. <laughs> That's what you call it. He's just picking them off one by one. Now, that was a pitch I considered, and I said no. I'm taking it too far. But Adam uh, said he took it too far? Whoa. <laughs> Maybe we just all need to see Dumplin', then we'll reconvene. <laughs> Last question here, then. So what is going to be the title of the film, then, given now how we've kind of structured it and what we're working with how are we labeling this to get people's attention back to breakfast <laughs> yep the brunch club brunch. well that's what i'm saying like is it is it just a reboot like the, the you know is it just the breakfast club 2019 the breakfast club you know 2020 no or come on but, saturday school or something but i guess like I was trying to say, like, do we want to just keep it, you know, simple and to the core of it? rather Because, I, like, again, The Breakfast Club was kind of nebulous. And so is there a, another equivalent of that? Should it be related to the social media angle in any way? You know, Or is it, you just use my title, Forget About Me? And, like, it's like, what does that mean? What You know, but it ties back to The Breakfast Club. And maybe that's kind of her final statement, when she's saying, like, when she's closing off Signing her YouTube off. channel and her Instagram, she's like, forget about me. Live your life. What You know, something like that. Huh? Maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've done it, Stephen. Thank you so much for joining us and kicking off this idea. Went a lot of different directions. And I uh, think we'll see how the box office returns go on this one in our fictional sequel quest universe. 
Oh, yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. It's always a privilege and a pleasure. Now, if people want to talk to you, Stephen, further, where can they find you these days on the Internet? Oh, yeah. Plugs, plugs, plugs. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, you can find our website for the Super Mario Brothers movie at smbmovie.com. And we're also very active on Twitter, also smbmovie. For the coming year, we're, we're still celebrating the film's 25th anniversary, so we'll have a, a few more nationwide screening events and other projects coming up in the next few months. Very cool, yeah. So get connected, get involved. They really know how to have fun with this movie. And if you see just the number of people on Twitter rediscovering Super Mario Brothers the movie right now, I mean, it's they've really kicked off something special here, so be a part of that universe but uh speaking of universes here you might have heard if you're following us on social media jeff and i just launched a new podcast the two goofs podcast where we're talking about our time as costume characters at disneyland we had a preview episode a couple months back and the first episode just dropped talking about the audition so go ahead and see what our our process was there and get connected at two goofs pod on twitter you can check out uh two goofs podcast.com com and uh get connected on the website there and that is with the number uh, just so you uh, if you could find us easily that way and finally as uh, jeremy alluded to earlier next episode given the recent announcement of a ghostbusters directed by ivan reitman's son jason reitman we had planned to discuss a sequel to the 2016 ghostbusters answer the call the paul feig film and all of a sudden this exploded so very timely so next episode get ready for our continuation of the female ghostbusters universe and what would we have liked to have seen in a sequel which now for sure will not be coming <laughs> but who knows so stay tuned and uh, tell your friends get ready for what's to come and until next time don't you forget about me you enjoyed this episode of sequel quest and invite you to join us next week for another discussion about a film that never was share your ideas with the sequel quest universe by visiting sequelquestpod.com following us on twitter at sqpod on facebook by searching sequel quest or sending an email to sequelquestpod at gmail.com let the world know how much you enjoy the show by leaving a review and five star rating on itunes all films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. 